This is SciBite, episode 130, for May 13th, 2014. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to SciBite, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly science podcast, live on a Tuesday and fresh on a Wednesday over jupiterbroadcasting.com. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our excellent host, Heather. Hey there, Heather. Hey there, Chris. Hey, Heather. Happy science to you. Happy science. So what are we going to talk about today? Today, we're going to take a look at a solar sibling mapping neurons with crowdsourcing, Comets, an exoskeleton to help a paralyzed teen walk, curiosity news, and as always, take a peek back into history and up in the sky this week. Well, that sounds pretty excellent. I always love a good heart-tugging sibling story, Heather, so why don't we kick off the news. Okay, Heather, where do we start tonight? A team of researchers has identified the first, quote, sibling of the sun. We have a star that was almost certainly born of the same cloud of gas and dust that our star was born from. (laughs) Now this, it's not like it's right next door. This one is about 15% more massive than the sun. It is 110 light years away, the constellation that we see it as Hercules. Now, you can't see it with the the naked eye, but you can actually see it with some low-power binoculars near a bright star Vega. So there's a if you go to the, the show doc show notes, you can find a link to one of the, uh, the articles and it'll kind of show you where it is. Now, by pure coincidence, they've got data in the data on this because they've been, one of the observatories has actually been studying this star for about 15 years. Mm. So they're able to go back with that information, kind of put it together with some new calculations to say, okay, well, there's no massive hot Jupiter, so there's no large planets orbiting it. So it's really unlikely that something Jupiter-like is there. Now, they're not sure if there's any smaller planets, but that'll take some time to kind of go through and see what they can find on that. Maybe an Earth sibling? Huh? Yeah. Hmm. That'd be interesting. Well, you, you never know. It could, I, I, hey, I, I'm just looking forward to the the future side bite where you tell me. <laughs> now there were about 30 candidates that they kind of narrowed this down to. They're like, all right, because they're trying to find stars that were kind of born in the same clump of gas and dust that the star, sun was, because they can see what they look like, kind of get a better idea of what's happening with. Uh, you know, these various stars to kind of see what how our sun is doing. Sure. And so what they had to do is they had to look at a lot of different chemical analysis, go to the spectrographic analysis, and then they'll look through uh, the star's orbit because they see this, they can get an idea of the orbit, then they can kind of backtrack and see where if all of these stars kind of end up at the same starting position because that would be what it is, and just some of them travel in different um, orbits so they'd be further ahead or far or, uh hmm closer to along the uh, you know the orbit of the galaxy so it's not like really simple to do this because you have to have you have to narrow it down so that it's you know the specific clump of gas that our sun was made out of now to do that you have to have some kind of 
key, key chemical elements. So they, they all kind of vary among stars depending upon the gas cloud that they were made of. Mm. Now, it's, they were able to kind of narrow it down to barium, which is uh, yttrium, as two specific elements that would help really differentiate something with from our star's cradle to uh, versus other stars where you know the clouds of dust that they would come from okay so what they're really trying to do is identify all these stars you know these solar siblings as they call them so thinking you know it's probably born in a cluster of stars probably mm-hmm. thousand hundred thousand different stars those nurseries we see pictures of right yeah this would be about four and a half billion years ago with a B <laughs> since it started, you know, breaking up into all the different stars started creating their own orbits around the galactic center. So they're, you know, this one actually, they said even at 110 light years away, it's quote nearby. Other stars will, could be much further even. And so by looking at these and being able to find f- more of them, now that we've kind of found one, we kind of have a better idea of how to do it be able to find others and this will help us understand you know how the sun was formed mm-hmm. um how our solar system became hospitable for life if they were all very close to each other at one time then it's certainly possible that certain you know dust would follow these stars around that would form the planets so you know was a planet kicked off of one star and another star happened to pick it up so there's this kind of things going on too. So by kind of tracking these back down, you can find, you know, this star and that star all, you know, came from the same place. You know, we were all formed together. So you backtrack it and you can find, all right, this is probably the location where the sun and all its siblings were, were born. And now they've been traveling. You get a better idea of, you know, the sun's lifetime, how it's doing. You know, we have a lot of information about our sun. Mm-hmm. That is a star that we have very close of view on. So if we look at other stars that were kind of born from the same stuff, then we can start kind of branching out of, you know, what we know to kind of get a better idea of other stars. I like the idea of also, in a way, uh, taking what we know about, what we kind of have concrete information about our star and using that mm-hmm. to sort of fill in the model on the gaps that we don't know about these other stars that are so far away, but are, are able to come to some sort of reasonable conclusion just based yes. on using the data that we do know about our star. That's kind of an oh, interesting yeah. way to sort of, even if it is perhaps fraught with potential error, uh, it seems like it's at least a good starting point to say, all right, well, if we can't answer these kinds of things, let's take the, the science we absolutely know for sure about our local star and then just exactly. apply those. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, and then you can take that and be able to possibly use it for other stars, kind of take it yeah. off to the side and be like, well, and, and then you as know, you, if this works, then yeah. maybe this model works for those other stars. And as you learn more about those other remote stars, you know, you take out what you've plugged in and, you know, put in the things that you've learned, and that helps make a more complete model, and it's just a you can keep adding to it over time. Yeah. Huh. Well, that's fascinating stuff, Heather. I hope there's a sibling Earth. You never know. I think that'd be good. Any other any other thoughts on this story? Uh, not until there's more knowledge on it. Not until that you have the announcement about that sibling Earth. You mean, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's take a quick moment right here. 
Uh, I just wanted to uh, remind everybody that for a limited amount of time, we have the Coda Radio 100 t-shirt. This is something we decided to put out there for the Coda Radio audience. We had a few requests, and so Rotten Corpse put together a... Uh, he's from our chat room. He's a producer of Linux Unplugged and Linux Action Show. We put together a logo for us. So if you go to teespring.com slash CR100, we've got 159 sold now out of 100. So that means you're going to get a shirt if you po- if you order. Five days, 23 hours, 18 minutes, and 32 seconds if you order right now over at teespring.com slash CR100. We've got a t-shirt, uh, which you can get multiple colors of. And we also have a hoodie, which there's some really great colors of as well. And then there's the ladies' tee, which for some reason is only available in black, but that's like a limitation of the thing. However, black turns out to be a popular color, so it's not so bad. Teespring.com slash CR100. Celebrate Coda Radio 100 with a little Jupiter Broadcasting swag. And uh, you can find a link to that on the sidebar of the Jupiter Broadcasting website for a limited time. After this run, after uh, those five days, no more shirt for you. You can't have it. You won't have it. We're locking it down. It is a limited time thing. Uh, and it's kind of fun. It's with the summer colors and whatnot. So uh, teespring.com slash CR100. And Heather, with that file, that means it must be time for the news bite. Now, uh, I hope you have some science for games, because I'm hoping if I could just play video games, and if we could just sort of make that a way I learn, make that the way I earn money, make that the way I do chores around the house, any way we could incorporate video games into anything, I'm happy with. Well, if you play a video game, you could contribute to science. I'm ready. So a team of researchers working at MIT has used this data supplied by gamers, what they call uh, iWire. There's the game they created on the web, and they're through that they're able to use this to get to track to, to have a better idea of where new neurons are. Okay. So they're kind of tracking down how visually everything is going from neuron to neuron uh, through the brain to kind of describe how is the eye able to understand what's happening when something is moving in front of it. That's amazing. Now, what do you mean by moving? Now. The scientists have known for a while how, you know, light enters the eye, strikes the back of the eyeball, photoreceptors respond, they send information to the brain, and the brain is able to interpret that. Now, that whole process we know, but it's not been quite as clear as to what happens when the eye is seeing things moving, how it kind of interprets that. Hmm. So what they're trying to do is figure out how the nerve cells work in the eye. Now, they look for mice or humans to kind of see what's going on now neurons are very very tiny and <laughs> when you're looking at these in action it's a little hard to figure out what's going on very 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 hard to see yeah so what they're doing is they're building three-dimensional models on computers but even then even computers have a hard time with some of this yeah so what they're able to do is they're going all right Hey, online people, you like playing games? You, I bet you'd feel happy contributing to science. You can be involved, too. Really? So what they did is they have these little, looks like a cube, and it's all these different slices of these neurons. And the computer, the program, has kind of guessed where they are going. Now, it's a whole bunch of different, essentially circles and ovals and a whole, just a whole bunch of different lines of these different neurons and everything going through. And just slide by slide, you can kind of slide up and down it to get a 3D map. 
Now, like I said, the program has kind of made a guess as to where everything is. But programs don't necessarily color inside the lines really well, mm. especially for really complicated things like this. I mean, it looks, you know, a whole bunch of different circles and ovals and things squashed together that, you know, pop up and disappear. So what they're letting people do is kind of scroll up and down these slides to say, okay, help fill in the line here, help, you know, know you're outside the lines there, kind of help fill that in. And as it goes, the computer sort of re-modifies the 3D model. So it's, re it's modeling what the neurons and what they look like. So you're kind of helping get that correct. So, but not only that, but it's also helping teach the program how to essentially, you know, color inside the lines better. So it's getting it a bet. It's teaching it as well. So you're helping them put forward the science. And I mean, so many thousands of people working on this. You know, you fiddle around with it for an mm -hmm. hour. That is an hour of a researcher's time that you have saved them. Yeah. And by you know thousands of people this is kind of the results that they could not do you know on their own as a group this is just letting them do things so much faster and i like the part where it's not only are you helping figure it out but it's also teaching the program better wow that's that's kind of amazing i think yeah, so i think it's interesting to uh to reach out to people, and so they've essentially made a video game out of it. I've just not seen this video yeah. game. Yeah, it's not super widespread. I had honestly, I hadn't seen it until I started reading about this, okay. and I was like, "Oh, cool!" It's uh, let's see, but yeah, there's. Hmm. I noticed. You know, you can go online. You can essentially, it's like a. I noticed it's called iWire, so it's E-Y-E-Wire. Uh, but, uh, oh, I think you copied over there because I don't hear you anymore. Uh, the other thing I noticed is um, they have like a, uh, like a, I don't know, like an achievement system? Yeah, kind of, where it's, they sort of reward you. Obviously, they're not going to take the first guess. With a lot of these different systems, they say, all right, you know, if so many people kind of agree with it, Okay. Then they'll then they'll move forward. It's like Waze. But, like on Waze, like if you report traffic and a couple other people report the same traffic incident, then it'll publish it to the rest of the public and it gives you it gives you reward points. Yeah. But it you don't necessarily I don't think get all the reward points until several several other participants have confirmed it. Yes. So it's not you're getting cookies and stars just for clicking, 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 clicking without actually <laughs> right. you know, putting forward some effort. You're just being like click yes this looks great this looks great now you kind of have to have other people go i agree that looks greater no you're just clicking buttons trying <laughs> to get stars on mm -hmm. your sheet aren't you wow that is really but, fascinating though so what they're able to do is they're what they're what this is doing is they're showing how these bipolar cells which is a specific type of neurons for the eye how they're connected to each other so they're able to kind of take map the path that these are they're taking between the you know the eye and the brain itself so you're able to really track where it's going and through this they were actually able to see that um the cells connected closer to the center of the eye 
take a little bit longer to process than the ones on the outside of the eye. No, you'd think now, it'd be the opposite. Ju- now, it's really, 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 really small obvi- amounts, obviously. Yeah. What it's, they're doing is they're saying, okay, well, maybe this kind of thing is how the eye is able to see motion in one direction. It's that, you know, the difference in between them is saying, hey, mm. there's movement here. Almost think of it like um, Doppler shift. Yeah, okay. You know, where you hear, yep. you know, a train coming at you. And sh- yeah, so, but you can also see that with uh, light. They see, you know, it's red shifted or blue shifted, they call it, depending on where the things are moving towards you or moving away from you. Hmm. So that kind of a thing where you see a little bit of a shift in the time where your brain goes, oh, that means it's moving that way. Right. It, synth- it synthesizes the difference for you. And it's an interesting way where the brain sort of takes visual data and then patches in bits that you don't have a full picture of. Yeah. So, I mean, this is all still theory, but they're getting closer to saying, well, so far the data that we have shows this. And this is all through results from people going online and saying, I want to play a game for science. Interesting, huh? And it's funny because there's a lot of different... Uh, branches of science and even sort of history going into these kind of things using this crowdsourcing online gaming type stuff. Whereas everything from, you know, the Kepler data looking for planets to this kind of thing where they're mapping neurons to I've seen uh, the weather, um, you know, national weather people go through ship logs. Mm. You know, they scanned in old ship logs where the captain says sunny, cloudy, this kind of temperature, this kind of weather, where you go through and you say, a person can read someone's handwriting. So you say, this is what this line of the of it says. And so they're able to go back and track, you know, weather through that. Mm-hmm. So it's all these different kind of things where the human brain and interaction of just, you know, regular people, well, quote, quote, regular people, um, that even if it's not your field, if you're interested in it, you can actually, you know, contribute to the science of it. And, you know, helping researchers figure out these things. Yeah. I love the future. It's Sometimes stuff like this comes out, I'm like, oh, it's great to be in 2014 these days. That's just yes. so neat. Now, uh, Heather, uh, can you confirm or deny the rumor you just can't teach an old asteroid new tricks? Uh, I deny that. Oh, okay. <laughs> What's going on? On October of last year, October 23rd, 2013, some astronomers picked up a very faint asteroid with an unusual orbit kind of fits a comet more than an asteroid. Mm. Now, at the time, all you saw, all they saw was a tiny little point. No haze around it, signifying a coma, no tail. But on May 7th, a remote telescope located in Australia was taking pictures of it, and they saw that it had a little bit of a fuzz around it, which oh. would indicate that it could be moving towards a comet. Now, so they've renamed this uh, to signify that it is kind of being described as a comet now as it continues to pour off dust and water vapor. Now, it'll continue growing brighter towards month's end, and so far they've actually seen it have a substantial coma or atmosphere. That's where it's just kind of a fuzz around itself. There's no tail visible yet, but this is about four to nine miles, seven to 15 kilometers across. 
So it's not tiny per se. Uh, it's a decent amount. It'll take about 500 years for this thing to make one orbit around the sun. Oh, wow. Now, it's where I said it had a strange orbit more like a comet. These, yeah. There's a number of these asteroids like this. They're called damocloids. And they're thought they might be comets. They've just sort of lost all their fizz. You know, a comet. <laughs> it's all burned you know, that, off. Well, what you see of a comet, all the fuzz and everything, is where there is dust yeah. and water vapor right. being vaporized off of it. But eventually it it's, it's got to run out, right? I mean, eventually, yeah, eventually it's got to... it runs out. You shake the, yeah, I've always you know, the soda, soda up enough and eventually it gets flat. Yeah. So that's what they think is once these star, these comets are all depleted, then they become these asteroids in this orbit. Now, they're kind of like Haley Comet types where they have long periods of, you know, how their orbit is. But very rarely, some of these actually come back to life. Like this one, where it actually starts being active again. So, like maybe there was some ice that just didn't quite get melted, and it was in shade for long enough, and it comes back around and it starts acting up again. Yes, and it'll actually be closest on June the fifth, which will be about when it'll be about eight to nine magnitude, which means you'll probably be able to see it with uh, about a twelve-inch telescope under dark skies. So it'll be possible for you to see it uh, with a. Big enough scope. There'll be some be- some amateur astronomers that'll have telescopes that big, or maybe you have some observatory somewhere near you that you'd be able to go. And they'll, as it gets closer, they'll probably be able. They'll probably point the telescope at it at some point. Now, you might actually be able to see it with binoculars as well Ooh. as it gets close. Now, in this case, this is a speedy little <laughs> comet. I mean, it is going. About seven degrees a night. Now, five degrees is about the width of your fist at arm's length. And so that comes down to about a third of a degree per hour. Now, with that, if you're looking at it through a telescope, you can actually see it. You'll actually be able to see it moving. So if it's pointed toward, you'll be able to see it moving against the background stars. That would be amazing. keep adjusting the telescope to follow this thing. Oh my gosh, that would be such a thrill. Like to actually, I mean that, how cool See would that it be? moving. Yeah, yes. that's the part that got me amazed. It's going to be moving so fast that yeah, yeah, it'll be awesome to kind of be able to if you're able to see it to go to, you know, see this little uh, comet coming back to life. Yeah. But in addition, being able to actually seeing it move to along. S- to see something fly through space like that would be a real thrill. Yeah, like just as you're sitting there, not kind of like one <laughs> night to the next night saying, oh, yeah, I see that it's in a different yeah. you know, position against the background stars. Yep, I agree with Ick in the chat room. We need to build an observatory here at JB1. I think that's the only thing that makes sense, Heather. Oh, of course. We could capture rooftop. these. Ar- we captured ourselves, right? That shouldn't be too hard. Yeah, rooftop. You know, we'll we'll set it up on the, the top floor of our house. Yeah. Cut a, a hole in the uh, in the roof so we can kind of pop off the a section of the roof so you can check out the yeah the stick, skies through that and we'll just cover it back up and maybe we just took a webcam out there from time to time hooked up to the telescope i don't know yeah uh, all right there i'm bringing it to, come on in guys let's go all right heather what are we talking about here in the two bite news all right the soccer world cup opening on June the 12th, will possibly have a mind-controlled exoskeleton designed to enable a paralyzed person to walk. 
So robot legs? Kind of. Now, the BBC reported this saying that this robot suit, if all goes as planned, air quotes, hopeful eyes, that what they'll be able to do is this, the, uh, the website is Dive. D-I-V-E. It's the, what they're able to do is developed by uh, you know, a team of scientists, part of the Walk Again project. Now, it's they say it's kind of like 10 years worth of work that they've kind of put together through this, and it's being controlled by brain power. Like they have patient wears a cap. Wow. Where it's able to pick up brain signals and relay them to a computer in the backpack. Wow. It's able to decode that and send it to the exoskeletal legs. And the battery in the backpack lasts around two hours, so based on hydraulics so possibly they'll be able to you know have this working at the world cup now they've had a number of about eight patients in a lab kind of training with this Mm -hmm. so there is some speculation that one of them who knows who would be able to stand up with this uh, exoskeleton walk and possibly you know have the first kick of the the world's cup wow now kick the ball oh my gosh so you know they had a lot of this and some of it was 3d printed technology so they can you know build this uh, the kind of speed and strength with the kind of materials that they want but you know there's programming that says you know once the foot of the exoskeleton touches the ground there's specific pressure Mm -hmm. then the sensor kind of senses that and so it is able to kind of get a better of idea of, you know, what's going on. And so the computer can kind of help out the, the system going, yes, you've actually hit the ground. Now mm-hmm. go to the next foot. Mm-hmm. So be prepared that, you know, you're shifting the weight this way. I think uh, what's kind of the takeaway, though, from this is it's a mind-controlled exoskeleton. I mean, that's yes. unbelievable. Yeah, and it's not like you think like wires in the brain. This is literally just a cap yeah. on the brain. Yeah. Now, I mean, think of it um, – like EEGs, they're, that's where they put little probes on your head and they're able to pick up brain waves from that. They're able to monitor mm-hmm. you know, certain things that are going on. So this would be very similar mm-hmm. where they're able to kind of get some of those waves to translate into things that control an exoskeleton. Right. Yeah, I'm looking at the archive footage you have linked in the chat room and you, or in the uh, show notes and you can see them setting it all up and then hooking up to the computer and sending in the programming. It's pretty incredible. Pretty yeah. Unbelievable. And, you know, you could see where this is the beginning of a technology that has millions of applications, could be a huge industry. Makes you wonder about some of the new robotic industries we're going to see pop up over the next 20 years. Yeah. Well, Heather, guess what? Speaking of uh, popping up, science just keeps popping up some updates. So what do we got? Right. We have spoken about this before. In October, we've got a comet that's going to be brushing by Mars. And it's we talked about that back in January and April. Yeah. Side by 117 and even last year. Oh. Side by 90 back in April of last year. Now, this, this just, it's going to be, this is slight Comet A1 sliding spring. Now, they discovered at the beginning of two thir- 2013 um, in Australia, you know, they saw that it was going to be near Mars at a specific orbit trajectory. So then, of course, they start going through and being, all right. Is how close is this to Mars? Is it going to get? So no, it's been completely ruled out. It is not going to hit Mars whatsoever. <laughs> Good. Um, 
Now, they have had to think about all of the spacecraft. Now, of specifically the orbiters. Mm. Because what they've found is that it is going to orbit close enough that some of the uh, dust from this comet will interact with Mars's upper atmosphere. So in this case, they might have to, what they're looking at is, will they have to adjust the orbit of some of the spacecraft, the orbiters, so that they are not in danger of getting hit by any of this dust in, on any of the cameras or anything like that, ah. or the you know um, dishes for communication. So there's a chance that they might kind of alter the orbits of that. Now, this thing is going to pass about a third of the distance between the Earth and the Moon. It's going to be so. It's going to be orbiting. It's going to pass by Mars a third of the distance to the moon. So it's be really close. close. Seven, 17 times closer than any recorded comet, but coming by Earth. Yikes! And so. So it's a close shave for Mars. Yeah, it's not scary, but it is fairly close. Well, now, be able scary. to. So be able to tech it through, the, um, some of the ground-based rovers, uh, Curiosity. Yeah. You know. And opportunity, they might be able to actually look up and see it. So, really? of course, they're gonna. They might be able to see it from the ground? Yeah, they might be able to see it from the ground. The, <laughs> well, they'll be able to see it from the ground. It'll be, what can their cameras snatch a picture of? You know, how much can they be able to picture it? And of course, uh, there's a couple of, you've got um, uh, India's Mars Orbiter mission that's going to arrive just before the comet hits. And that was designed to study the upper atmosphere of Mars. Huh. And that's what's going to have some of the interaction with the comet will be that upper atmosphere. So you're able to really get some good data out of that mm -hmm. and be able to see what still, you know, what they have um, functioning at that point, send back all the data they can. It's definitely exciting to any of the uh, Mars people and any of the comet people because it really gives a chance to kind of look at these through a different uh, perspective. And of course, other, all sorts of Earth-based assets will be looking to it um, selling what they can do. Uh, you know, amateur astronomers will be able to see it from the surface of the Earth, for those of us who are not on Mars. Um, but being able to see the interaction of the comets, uh, coma and dust and tail, with the upper atmosphere of Mars and the moons of Mars as well. Um, they're expected that a little bit of this water vapor will be deposited on the moons of Mars. Wow. Wow. Just barely, but just a little bit. So it'll be really interesting to see uh, what happens with all the interactions. Yeah. And uh, I wish I could be there holding out a cup and have a little bit of Comet water. And just, <laughs> I'd drink it. Why not? I mean, what's, why not? Uh -huh. Let's do it. I'd do uh -huh. it, Heather. I'd do it in a minute. Why not? Why not? Hey, Heather, look out. Skeptical science is skeptical. This next button. Now, I don't want to scare oh, anybody. No. Oh, but no. this next button may actually set the time machine's quantum power source into overdrive, not just destroying this universe, but the uh -huh. next seven universes over. Oh, or, no. or, it's a little incoming feedback. Oh, okay. Woo! Uh, why do you always do that Yeah, I got to talk to Rika about moving that button here in the studio because it turns out it's just a little viewer feedback. You know, even if we just labeled them, that would be helpful. That would, but you'll never label it. I know. Uh, it takes too much time, I Heather. I know. Yeah, nothing's bad yet, happened yet. What's the worst that could go wrong? Destroy so, seven universes. Right. So what is our feedback this week? All right. We have a Twitter from Kenny McClade. Uh, you say, pointing out an article probing the depths of the methane world. 
So looking at these, you have scientists that are just studying um, methane off Oregon's coast. They're looking at these deep, dark, cold areas of the ocean where microbes are buried in the sediment are actually feeding on methane that's seeping through the seafloor. Now, this kind of thing where they can see the type of metabolism, bicarbonates, reactions in the seawater to form these tall, rocky deposits. And then from that, be able to see this is how those microbes are able to use methane, not mm. oxygen, to survive and thrive. And they actually be able to see that they're using trace tungsten, which they've never seen before, um, which is fairly instead of uh, molybdenum. Now, they've seen that before, which is more common in these cold seep environments. But this is a new kind of version, twist to it. Now, they've, these tungsten microbes have only been found in really high temperature, like boiling water near hydrothermal de de uh, vents in the bottom of the ocean. Now, these are in cold conditions. So by looking at these, you say, okay, well, you've got scientists studying cold, non-oxygenated locations where there's microbes mm -hmm. happy to live on methane. But what does that really mean for us? That means that it could be an analogy for non-Earth-based places. You have methane. Um, methane lakes on Saturn's moon Titan saying, hey, we see these microbes that are able to live in cold methane environments, right. which we see on Titan. Right. So could there be squirmy ickiness, gobs of gross living microbes? It it doesn't it seem possible. pretty. It seems pretty possible to me. I mean, what do I know? But you when you when like you mentioned, you know, when you've got when you've got them on Venus, <laughs> it seems possible that we we here could have them as well. Yeah. Uh, it's, and there that's truly. It seems like something truly alien in a way too. It really is. That's where you're, you're seeing these extremophiles, is what they call them, where these microbes and living organisms in really extreme environments here on Earth. Right. And really studying them, we're able to say, okay, well, in these crazy environments, we're able to see microbes. You know what, my, you know what makes me wonder? That these kind of places on other planets, it's not ruled out. Right. It makes me wonder, like, if they arrived on a rock and then like found and they just happen they happily ended up in a place where they just didn't have to adapt that much and they just kind of like that's how they got here from whatever from whatever rock they arrived on and they've just kind of stayed that way ever since uh, i don't cuz it really does i mean alien is just the best way to put it i don't know yeah all right heather any other thoughts on that no not that i can think of all right well while we're talking about space stuff as we tend to do why don't we do a little curiosity update are you ready i'm ready and lift off of the Atlas V with curiosity. All right, very good. Very good, Heather. How is our favorite rover? All right. Last couple of weeks I've been talking about them prepping for their third drilling event, and they have did the drill. They've had a full-length drill hole, which was able to um, close to the test hole that they drilled last week in the same very same rock. So able to kind of preview for that with that one they were able to kind of get an idea of the kind of material that was inside of it. And what they're able to see is that the drill tailings we talked about this uh, last week. How do they get the dust from that drilling site? They don't have to scoop it. The it's the drill itself. It has these flutes. 
that kind of pulls the dust into a container up at the, on the arm itself. So they're able to look at that, the tailings from that, was like they call them. And they're actually much less red than any of the other two drilling sites that they've had. Yeah. So this is kind of suggesting that the chemical and mineral analysis that shall be coming in the coming weeks will show very different material than we've seen before. Now, so they're going to be sieving this, delivering it to various, you know, onboard scientific instruments and kind of being able to see, all right, well, what exactly is going on here? Now, this is a different location than we've had before. The other two were, this is the first time where this is uh, sandstone. Mm. The other places were, you know, where the kind of place where it'd be uh, wet locations, bottom of river type stuff. Mm -hmm. Now, this is sandstone. So this is the kind of stuff that when you look off and they look towards the mountain, you see kind of the shapes of hills and things. Now, this is the kind of thing where, you know, even here on Earth, you have sandstone, you'll have softer parts and harder parts, and the softer parts get, you know, washed away in the winds and things. So it kind of gives shape to the to the area, to the environment. So from this, they'll be able to kind of tell this may be why you see how things look and give them a better idea of how these kind of sands are cemented together. Hmm. Now, how this thing worked. So this will give us another better idea of what the history of the water was in this location. It's like a little bit of a time machine. Actually, that's yes. our department. But it's sort okay. of like, you know, kind of the same way, looking back a little bit. getting It's it's so fun. We are, at a, in, a, in a way, at a really great, exciting time in this process and in a way a little a little disappointing because what we're doing right now is we're building the foundation that so much awesome science is going to be based off over the next you know decades right well yeah and, and we're here at the beginning now but you we're know in on the ground floor and that is pretty i mean we're mars hipsters really oh yeah if you think about it and in the future the future generations will like oh yeah we know all this stuff no we don't have to send a rover there to do that we've got all that covered it's no, because then you can get you'll have better oh, I know. science instruments. That's what I'm saying. I'm kind of jealous of them in a way, in a ah. little bit. Like it's cool that we get to be here at the beginning, but at the same time, I wouldn't mind being able to go to the future and get to have fun when like they've got better science and they've figured out a lot of these fundamentals and all that kind of stuff. Think about how much awesome we are than the people decades ago. Well, yeah, I know. <laughs> what do they got? <laughs> Nothing. They're like we have pictures. You have science. I don't even think they have time Stop machines. Stop whining. I, I mean, we have time machines. In fact, yeah. speaking of time machines, why don't you yes. jump in? Let's go. Here we go. Oh. Not bad. No, see, it's good because I didn't, I didn't charge us up. I, uh, I wasn't sure. I was a roll the dice this week, but last week I just put, I put all that power in there. Took out two city blocks, so I figured I should wait a week, which is good because we only had to go back sixty years to May seventeenth. 1954. Heather, what happened this week in science? The official groundbreaking of the CERN laboratory in Geneva. This is the place that has given us, uh, you know, the Higgs boson, you know, what they call the, the, you know, the quote, God particle, all this cutting edge science from these, you know, from this lab. And the start of it all was all the way back to 60 years ago. Now, it's kind of funny. The acronym originally stood in French 
um, for essentially European Council of Nuclear Research. Now, the whole lab changed its name very slightly, but it changed its name. But they, because CERN was a better acronym, C-E-R-N, it was much easier to pronounce. Yeah. They kept that. I see. They said, it's okay. We, we, you know, we all accept that it's been changed, but we'll keep the acronym. Now, this is this kind of thing is where, you know, they talk. All these different uh, European nations came together to build this thing. It is a huge, huge complex. Yeah. And things have been, you know, upgraded over the years. You know, we're just starting the uh, right after the Higgs boson was discovered, you know, two years ago now. Um, you know, they were was right at the end of them kind of shutting down for the next upgrade. Now they're just starting to kick back up again. So it's these kind of things as it has been done over time, all this time. Now, it's kind of funny because they say, you know, this is the location where um, they say, you know, it could be the first web server was located, the first, um, you know, IP routers, these kind of locations where they were setting the stuff and opening all this data up mm -hmm. to the scientific community mm -hmm. to all jump in and say, hey, we want this data too. But all that crazy cutting-edge science that we see today all started with a shovel 60 years ago this week. Wow. That is pretty amazing when you think about it. And actually, uh, for some of the things we covered not that long ago, for so much that's actually happened, mm -hmm. it's pretty incredible. All right, Heather, well, let me recalibrate the SciBite 2000 so that way we can look up into the sky this week. All right, on Wednesday, May the 14th, we've got the full moon in the afternoon, about 3.15 Eastern Daylight Time. You can look for Saturn to the upper right of the moon on Wednesday. As we roll into Friday, uh, May 16th, about twilight, you can actually see Mercury is starting to pop up in the low west to northwest. That's far to the lower right of Jupiter. You'll be able to start seeing Mercury now start to come out uh, in general this week, starting to become visible in the evenings, low in the west-north horizon, uh, about 40 to 60 minutes after sunset. Uh, Venus in general this week is the morning star still, low in the eastern horizon during dawn. We've got Mars Hail. just after dark. It's the highest in the south with Spica to its far lower left. Those are always the, the group they talk about because Mars is orangish red, Spica is a blue-white giant star. So they're a good combo, but they're starting to spread apart now. Got Spica being a little bit further apart now than it has been in the past. We have Jupiter hey at twilight. It is high in the western sky, sinking slowly towards the horizon as the night goes by, setting about midnight. And we've got Saturn, which was on opposition on May the 10th, which means it was complete opposite side of the sun from Earth. Oh, jeez. Now, that means it's got a whole nighttime viewing schedule. It rises at sunset in the southeast, gets to its highest position in the south about 12 to 1 a.m., and goes set, headed towards morning, setting in the west. So it's an all-night viewing object. Very nice. That's a great one. Boy, a full moon, Saturn. That's not bad, Heather. Yeah. We've got yeah. all sorts of different planets. We've got Mercury starting to show up, too. <laughs> I tell you what, it's like there's stuff going on up there in that sky. There is. And you know what? If you see something, you're like, hey, what is that? What, hey, what is that? Because, you know, maybe my demonstration here on Stellarium wasn't that great. Well, you just go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com, find SciBite 130, and then guess what? 
guess what? You just go through the full show notes. Heather has everything chronologically laid out as she covered them right here in this show and towards the bottom. You know what you'll find right there? The Looking Up in the Sky segment. And then you just, oh, that, that's what I saw. And you can look it up on your smartphone. Maybe you're at a party. You're hitting on somebody. I mean, I don't know. I mean, you probably don't want to start with that. It's probably not your opening line, but somewhere in that territory, you'd be all right. Why couldn't science be your opening line? I guess it could. Depends on the party. All right, Heather, is there anything else we wanted to cover this week? Not that I can think of. All right, well, very good. Uh, I'd like to encourage you all to reach out to SciByte. Just go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com, click that contact link, and choose SciByte from the dropdown, or you can tweet right at Heather, JB underscore Mars underscore base. Heather, thanks for the great show. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for tuning this week's episode of SciByte. We'll see you right back here next week.